You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Thursday, April 15th, 2021. I'm Karen Manirajo. And I'm Jack Stone Truitt. New York City is gearing up for congestion pricing, but the road to that plan has been a long and bumpy one. I, as I've told my colleagues who've been fighting along with me, I don't break out the champagne until the first toll is paid. President Biden has plans to change the next federal census. U.S. residents of Middle Eastern or North African descent say they've been left out. And I was like, uh, I don't know what to fill out. Because um, I was like, I'm obviously not white. And this week in our commentary series, the toll of watching a loved one struggle with memory loss. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York City, I'm Kate Stockram. Bronx District Attorney Darcel Clark is the latest New York City prosecutor to announce she'll throw out convictions made by former NYPD detective Joseph Franco. Franco was indicted in 2019 for lying under oath about drug sales he claimed to have witnessed. The move comes after both the Brooklyn and Manhattan DAs announced they planned to dismiss convictions by Franco as well. Together, the dismissals would represent one of the largest conviction purges in state history, totaling over 300 by a single detective. Governor Cuomo introduced a $25 million energy management program today. Its goal is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by incentivizing energy efficiency in commercial buildings. Cuomo said such buildings are one of the largest sources of harmful greenhouse gas emissions in our state. And a video of a robotic NYPD dog with surveillance capabilities has gone viral. That's R2-D2, y'all. Never seen nothing like that in my life. R2-D2. The video was filmed in the aftermath of an arrest at a New York City housing authority complex in Manhattan. It's been posted for three days and has amassed over eight and a half million views. It's also spurred debate about the ethics of police surveillance. Senator Brad Hoyleman tweeted, This money should be invested in NYCHA and our communities, not in new ways to spy on us. April 15th marks two anniversaries for famed New York figures. On this day in 1947, Jackie Robinson became the first black player in Major League Baseball when he joined the Dodgers at Ebbets Field in Brooklyn. And although Jeffrey Ross Hyman, better known as Joey Ramone of The Ramones, passed away 20 years ago today, the Queens-born musician continues to rock on. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Kate Stockholm. This is Uptown Radio. I'm Jack Stone Truitt. And I'm Karen Manirajo. New York City is on the verge of becoming the first in the United States to implement congestion pricing, a charge on cars entering high traffic areas. The goal? To reduce air pollution and keep traffic flowing smoothly. But the city's plan, like its traffic, has gotten stuck in its fair share of jams. Renee Roden has the story on the long road to congestion pricing in New York City. New York City has been test driving plans for congestion pricing for a while. Back in 1969, Mayor John Lindsay called for tolls to clean up the city's air and relieve congestion. It was an unpopular plan. I am requesting the governor and Mr. Ronan to indicate whether they will support a commitment by the city to impose tolls on the East River bridges if feasibility studies prove favorable, though revenue from this source may be two to four years away. 
That was 62 years ago. And still the revenue that the MTA hopes congestion pricing will bring, all $15 billion of it, isn't here yet. Sam Schwartz was a traffic engineer working with Mayor Lindsay at the time and a champion for congestion pricing. And we started working on tolls on the Eastern Harlem River bridges back in the early 1970s. The governor signed off on the tolls in 1973, right as Mayor Lindsay's successor, Abraham Beam, took over. But Brooklyn politicians who would have to pay to drive into Manhattan pressured Beam to kill the plan. When Beam refused to implement the tolls, an environmental group sued, and the Supreme Court demanded the city implement the bridge charge by 1977. But that year, two New York congressmen passed legislation that voided the court order. Still, Schwartz kept at it. I tried again in 1980 as a city official, was promptly sued by the Automobile Club, the Garage Board of Trade, and the city lost the lawsuit. In the meantime, the city met federal air quality standards, its pollution problem improved, so it put congestion pricing on the back burner. Finally, 20 years later, a congestion charge happened, just not in New York. And I was so jealous when London beat us as the first Western city. The mayor of London, Ken Livingston, ran a congestion charge during his campaign. Despite political pushback, he managed to get the plan in place three years later. New York took note and took action, but slowly, like its traffic. Over the next decade, experts noticed there were fewer cars on the road, but more ride shares like Ubers and Lyfts, which meant traffic got slower. So finally, two years ago, New York State passed the Traffic Mobility Act. It gave the city the green light on congestion pricing, as long as the Federal Department of Transportation signed off, which it didn't. Governor Cuomo blamed the president for antagonizing a blue state. David Jones is on the MTA's board. The uh, Trump administration was unwilling to move forward with giving the environmental okay. The Biden administration, though, has given the process the go-ahead. But Jones says even if the federal review goes quickly, there will still be lots of local challenges. That's all going to be worked out, like making sausages. It's going to be a political process that has to go on. Some details are clear. The congestion zone will be Manhattan city streets south of 61st Street. But most are still up for consideration. Sam Schwartz says this gridlock looks familiar. I, as I've told my colleagues who have been fighting along with me, I don't break out the champagne until the first toll is paid. The 2019 legislation called for the formation of a review board to establish details, like exact toll prices and exemptions. Those details were due six months ago. The MTA has yet to say when the board will form. Renee Roden, Columbia Radio News. Cryptocurrency reached another milestone yesterday when Coinbase listed its shares on the NASDAQ stock exchange. Coinbase is a marketplace where investors can buy and sell cryptocurrency like Bitcoin. The company ended its first trading day with a valuation of $85 billion, more than 10 times its value when it was still private. John Ladizinski is an assistant professor at NYU. John, thank you for joining us. Hello. So, people are really excited about this. Why is it such a big deal for cryptocurrency? Well, like you said, it made stock market history yesterday. As you know, Coinbase is one of the largest digital exchanges in the industry. And while the market has seen, historically seen a lot of fundraising events around the crypto industry, this is the first IPO of a company specializing in cryptocurrencies 
on the U.S. capital markets. Uh, and that's a significant development. And does this make things easier for people to invest in cryptocurrency? Does it make it a bit more stable or legitimize it in some way? What does it mean for cryptocurrency itself? It will certainly make it easier for, for people to get in and, and sort of dip their toe in the cryptocurrency world. They specialize in um, keeping your information offline in something called cold storage. And how does Wall Street view cryptocurrency right now? <laughs> well, if you ask 10 different Wall Street guys, I'm sure you're going to get 10 different answers. Um, Cryptocurrencies in general is an alternate uh, currency. Uh, You don't see the U.S. or really any uh, major country out there having two different currencies. But there are countries out there that are, you know, have very unstable currencies. Um, Venezuela, for example, has a a million percent inflation. Try to get your arms around that. Where can they go to put their money? How can they trade or or buy things uh, one day without their currency being worthless the next day? Well, that's where, that's where cryptocurrency might come in. So I think that there are um, uh, huge benefits to it. Maybe not so much in the U.S. or in Europe as far as being an actual currency because of its volatility, but certainly elsewhere in the world. And so you mentioned the volatility. I imagine that the stock itself will be tied to the volatility of, of the currencies being traded on Coinbase itself. Does that pose a problem for investors, or is it something people are concerned about? Well, uh, Coinbase makes their money through transaction fees. And it's mainly coming from two of the major cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin and Ethereum. So if anything were to happen to those particular cryptocurrencies, a price drop or uh, uh, fewer transactions, it would, it would definitely negatively affect Coinbase. But if things continue to go the, to, to go the way they are now, uh, the, the things look bright. And is there anything kind of at odds with Coinbase's self-stated mission of an open financial system for the world, but now being listed on something like the NASDAQ and kind of a lot of crypto's ethos of, you know, being free from those kinds of regulations in general? I personally think regulations are good for the crypto industry. I mean, the more investor protection you have, I think it's the, the safer place it, it, it becomes for investments for, for, for individuals. President Biden just uh, uh, announced that he was uh, having someone look into uh, having more cryptocurrency um, regulations. And like I said, I think that's only a good thing. And do you have any sense of as to why now, why Coinbase decided to go public in this moment? Oh, well, uh, yeah. Um, the, uh, they, they're actually going public during a Super Bowl market for cryptocurrencies. I mean, Bitcoin has climbed from under $30,000 at the end of 2020, and it's, it's almost $64,000 today. So the, the uh, the amount of, of run-up in that, the amount of, of money that, that uh, Coinbase has made in, in the first quarter alone, uh, made it a perfect time for them to go public. All right. John Ladazinski is an assistant professor at NYU. John, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for, for having me. Lead mold, roaches, gas outages. Residents of New York City Housing Authority buildings have dealt with these problems for years. Now, as Katie Anastos reports, advocates and politicians are calling for change in the final months of the de Blasio administration. Leah Potter is president of the Tenant Association at Lincoln Houses, a NYCHA development in Harlem. She and other leaders are calling on Mayor de Blasio to address an uptick in maintenance issues and other poor living conditions. Look at our lead. 
Look at the mole. Look at the rats. Look at the roaches. Where's our heat, Mr. Blasio? Where's our hot water? New attention to these problems has come in the last few months. One housing complex, the Red Hook Houses in Brooklyn, has had a gas outage since January. Residents are cooking on electric hot plates provided by the New York City Housing Authority. Tenants at two other complexes are currently suing NYCHA for elevator, heat, and hot water issues. Jumani Williams is the New York City public advocate. He says a city response is long overdue. We have seen some false starts, a lot of false promises towards progress on better maintenance and employment practices, as well as attention to health issues like lead and elevator safety, according to residents. But we need sustained commitment and targeted action. At a press conference yesterday, Williams called for the de Blasio administration to make three key reforms in the mayor's final months in office. First, he wants changes to the schedule of maintenance workers at NYCHA complexes. The current scheduling system can leave complexes understaffed. At the press conference, State Housing Committee Chair Senator Brian Kavanaugh said this program causes delays in basic maintenance duties. This alternative work schedule program, which, you know, was no doubt well intentioned, clearly has not, uh, not only not solved the problem, but in many situations made uh, things worse in terms of maintenance and trash removal and cleaning. Second, Williams wants the city to do a better job enforcing a mandate that says 30% of the NYCHA workforce includes NYCHA residents. Tenant advocate Chris Banks says employing residents to work at their own complexes could help the city make repairs faster. Plus, he says, That's a component to help give NYCHA some level of independence and give tenants uh, the, 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 the feeling that, they, that there's some type of ownership, that there's some type of connection. Third, Williams wants to expand tenant participation in decision-making and leadership opportunities. City Council member Alika Ampre-Samuel, who represents Brooklyn, said this is part of needed reform at all levels of NYCHA leadership. We need to be looking at management and organizational structure because there has to be a change in how NYCHA does business. City officials estimate they'll need $40 million to complete all the repairs. In the meantime, advocate Chris Banks is looking ahead to the next administration. I think uh, the, the next man, the next city council, can't just be talkers. Um, they have to really have a heart for nature uh, and really want to see not, gradual, gradual, not just gradual change, but radical change. The city has planned to conduct gas piping inspections since late last year. Earlier this month, they announced that these inspections would be completed by June 30th. Katie Anastas, Columbia Radio News. And now a story from our commentary series. Arcelia Martin reflects on when she started to fear forgetting. I'll say it. I'm a hoarder. But I don't hoard things. I hoard sounds. Hey, Ar. Hola, hola. It's Anna and I. For the last three years, I've kept every voicemail from the people who've played a role in my life, big or small. Like this one from Jackie, who I lived with in college. We were both studying at Gonzaga University in Spokane. It was parents' weekend, and my mom was visiting. One night, Jackie wanted me to join her and our friends at the bar. But I was still a few weeks shy of being 21. So at 12.48 a.m., she left me a message proposing if I came with my mom, we could probably both weasel our way in. And you're going to be with your mom, and your mom sounds like a lady that gets what she wants. It's not like I save only the good recordings. If I listen and close my eyes, I can imagine which corner of the bar she's in and who's surrounding her. 
That voicemail is a path back to our yellow house on Augusta Avenue. To Jackie talking to me on her indestructible pink brick of a phone she had for half of college. I started saving voicemails when I first began to realize that sometimes the things that are the most important can be taken from you. Growing up, I never had a babysitter. When school got out early, I could always count on seeing my grandmother, who I call Yeya, waiting out front in her gold Buick. When I was a freshman in college, I decided I wanted to study in Italy, and I was freaked out about spending all of my savings on the trip. But Yeya told me what she always did, that what you see and what you dance, no one can take away from you. But after talking to her, I realized that the semester in Italy would be worth the investment. A few years later, my parents moved out of the house I grew up in. I told my grandmother how hard it was to clear out my childhood bedroom. And she said it again. What you see and what you dance, no one can take away from you. The years we spent together in that house weren't lost just because we no longer would live there. But then Yeya began to change. First, she started repeating the same questions over and over. Then she forgot how to make albondigas, the meatball soup she made anyone the second they had a fever. Then she forgot that I've graduated college. When I first saw this happening, I panicked. I had just decided that I loved telling stories. And I watched as one of the great storytellers of my life began the slow, cruel process of forgetting all that she knew. And that's when I started saving the voicemails. They helped me remember the wonder of the everyday thing. Like the night my friend Jackie tried to get my 20-year-old self to the bar with my mother. I'm a big believer in the beauty of the ordinary. Hello. I just called to say happy birthday to you. I love you very much. This is Grandpa and Grandma. Muchos besos, muchos besos, muchos besos. I love you. Hello. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. See you soon. So, do me a favor. Leave a message after the beep. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Jack Stone Truitt. And I'm Karen Mayrajo. Coming up, how black activists are coping with the emotional toll brought on by news coverage of racially charged police misconduct and killings. The Biden administration is adding a new category to the census form, Middle Eastern and North African. That recognition could mean more resources for the MENA community in America. And the gardening industry boomed last year as people sought ways to cope with loneliness and isolation during lockdown and quarantine. These stories and more coming up. This week has been especially trying for many black Americans. Amidst live coverage of the trial of Derek Chauvin, the ex-Minnesota police officer charged with killing George Floyd, body cam footage has vividly shown new incidents of violence by police against African Americans. The pepper spraying of Lieutenant Karen Nazario by officers in Virginia, and the police shooting of Dante Wright, a 20-year-old black man in Minnesota. Sandrea I. Coleman was a staff administrator at the NYPD and after retiring in 2015, devoted herself full-time to community organizing. This last year, she's worked full-time with Upper East Side for Black Lives Matter. The group has organized vigils every night since June. 
I spoke with her today, and she told me she feels that black people don't get a chance to even mourn one death before the next occurs. Uh, it's quite disappointing. I mean, basically, we just don't get a chance to mourn. We don't get the chance to grieve our loved ones. We don't get the chance to grieve our celebrities. And we sure enough, you know, do not get a chance to grieve everyday citizens um, in black America. It's It's just hard for us. This has been a really difficult week in terms of we have the Derek Chauvin trial happening on TV right now. We have uh, the video release of Dante Wright's killing um, and also uh, a video of Lieutenant uh, Karen Nazario and his um, traffic stop in Windsor, Virginia. Um, you, you spoke about how it feels like we can't catch a break. What does that mean for you? Could you talk a little bit more about that? I mean, when is when does it stop? We just don't get a chance to collect and gather and process our grief because it's grief after grief. We stay, it seems like black America stays in uh, a realm of bereavement, you know, from, like I said, even if it's, you know, rather loved ones and then people you don't know, everyday citizens that are dying in the streets to police violence. And, and what are we bringing into our, our law enforcement agencies? What, what is the criteria? Because I, I come from law enforcement. I'm retired, a, a civilian supervisor with NYPD. How, how far back are they digging into them when they, um, you know, uh, check them out, screen them? And there's a, a big disregard for black life, big disregard when it comes to law enforcement. It, it seems like this kind of sustained effort to have these community gatherings, to have these protests, to have these conversations around uh, police misconduct has had a toll on you as an organizer. Um, could you talk about what those mental health impacts have been in this last year of organizing or even in this past week? It's been rough. I mean, to have people come out during a, a pandemic, right, that's killing people and white and black stand out there or march in the streets and to protest, you know, the injustices that we are experiencing, we all, we all have risked our lives for over almost a year um, assembling and, um, you know, but I think us coming together and gathering, it gave a lot of people a sense of being, a sense of purpose. So there has been a sense of community birthed out of a tragedy. Um, and, you know, one person actually says coming in this space has helped their mental health. And that was Sandrea I. Coleman, a community organizer with Upper East Side for Black Lives Matter. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you. When Americans fill out the census, they're asked their race or origin. The list of 15 options includes white, African-American, Korean, and Filipino. This data guides everything from education and healthcare resources to what language ballots are printed in. President Biden recently promised to introduce a new category in the next census, Middle Eastern and North African. Meanwhile, many in the MENA community say collecting this information can be critical for providing resources in New York City. Leila Dose reports. Natalie Riz is a 24-year-old Egyptian-American theater actor and director living in Bushwick. When the pandemic hit, she pulled out her laptop and tried to apply to grants for minority artists. But she found none of them considered MENA artists people of color. I was like, 
uh, I don't know what to fill out. Because um, I was like, I'm obviously not white. Riz says she lost access to thousands of dollars worth of minority grants because she's officially considered white. And she says it's the same filling out medical forms or job applications. In college, she missed out on diversity scholarships. It's such a simple fix, you know what I mean? Like, I just keep coming back to this. It's a checkbox. Advocates say it's not only about access. It's also about collecting data. Abed Ayoub is director of legal and policy affairs at the American Arab Anti-Discrimination Committee. He says that a lack of information about community conditions and needs has a wide range of real-world impacts. It's taking away resources from the community, whether, again, it being business, education, healthcare, the economy. The lack of acknowledgement of the MENA community may also have health impacts. Layla Abdesalam is a clinical psychologist at Harvard. Uh, folks that were Egyptian stated that they identified as African-American. Uh, people who are Lebanese shared that they identified as Asian-American. Research found that uh, individuals who were more racially ambiguous uh, had higher suicidal ideation um, and had higher depression rates. Natalie Riz needs to get a routine COVID test for work, so she stops by the Wyckoff Heights Medical Center in Bushwick. She says whenever she's there, she's reminded of her mother, who is immunocompromised. She's been on a ton of therapies, and in several cases, my mom developed some of the most rare side effects of some of those therapies, and this happened several times. Her mother has multiple sclerosis, but she reacted poorly to standard treatment. Her doctors were puzzled. Natalie suspects if the doctors had better healthcare data, specifically for people of North African descent, finding the treatment for her mom wouldn't be so trial and error. I contacted New York City's planning department. They replied in an email that the city already gathers information about the MENA community using a separate survey. But Abed Ayoub says the survey doesn't reach enough people. And he says, while waiting for the 2030 census, the city should classify Middle Eastern North African as a disadvantaged minority. So they can do that on a state and local level. They may not have an accurate count of Arabs in New York, but they're still going to offer the community the services. Meanwhile, Natalie Riz has her own strategy to make herself more visible as a person of color. She stopped straightening her hair. She started wearing necklaces with ancient Egyptian Nefertiti pendants. I wear my hair as big and as curly as I can, you know what I mean, as it will get. Like, this is who I am. This is, um, uh, this is my heritage. This is my blood. This is my people. Leila Doss, Columbia Radio News. And now, the next installment in our series, New York Moments. Gorgeous. Lots of people out. Meet Lisa Orman, your friendly neighborhood bike activist. She's picking up a city bike from the station at West 100th and Broadway. Yeah, watching that whole um, station is like a little microcosm of life. It's very interesting. You know, older couples out on a bike ride together and then like a bunch of young kids like totally excited about the electric bikes and just chatting with people. It's, you see how fun it is and exciting, um, especially in the spring. Orman is taking her bike for a spin in Riverside Park. Yeah! 
Join us for another New York moment next week. You're listening to Uptown Radio from Columbia Radio News. Podcast available Thursdays at 5 p.m. As vaccination rates rise in the U.S., many Americans are planning long-awaited reunions with family and friends. In this piece from our commentary series, Megan Zarez reflects on the mixed feelings about her own homecoming. I grew up in Honolulu. By some accounts, it is the most isolated city on Earth. Sure, it's cool to have a hometown that's the platonic ideal of a tropical paradise. But these days, all I can really think about is the fact that there is a whole lot of water separating me from the people that I love the most. I haven't seen my grandma, or popo as I call her, for three years now. One year, it was because I just couldn't get enough time off. The year after that, I couldn't afford the plane fare. And this past year, it was the pandemic. I'm pretty sure that before this separation, I've spent more time with Popo than I have with anyone else in my life. When I was born, my mom had to go back to work just days afterwards. So Popo was the one who changed my diapers, and later she was the one who made sure I did my homework after school. Don't get me wrong, she is not the kind of grandma who knits and bakes cookies. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Popo can be as hard as nails. When her father refused to let her finish school in Hawaii, she took the money she made at the family grocery store and secretly bought a few shares of a local utility company. When she sold them a few years later, the profit was just enough to secure passage on a boat to L.A. and to pay for secretarial school. She's been retired from her job as a bookkeeper for several years now. But every morning, she still wakes up at 5 a.m. Only now, it's to inspect her yard and to scan the paper for the best coupons. Last month, Popo was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Whenever I see her again, there will have been three years and a pandemic's worth of difference between my memories of her and the person she's become. I know things will be different. Even before the diagnosis, she couldn't always remember who I was over the phone. Or maybe she'd call me up to rave about a new dish she discovered, only to recite back a recipe for bitter melon that's been passed down from her own grandmother. So I don't know how much she'll remember when I finally do go back. And I know that I've changed too. Last summer, I'm pretty sure I got the virus. Since then, I can't seem to hold on to my own memories so well either. Mostly it's little things. For instance, last week I tried to fix a blown fuse on my rice cooker, and I realized that I forgot how to use wire cutters. But I also worry that I'm losing more important memories, like the ones I have of Popo. But when I try and write them down, the words just seem to jam up before I can get them out onto the page. I got vaccinated a couple weeks ago. A lot of my friends are in the same boat, and they're all planning trips home. But the truth is, I'm afraid of seeing Popo again. A little part of me believes that by staying here, by staying away, I can hold back time. I know Popo would disagree. My grandma is not one for wallowing in the past. Recently, she called me, and she asked me when I was coming home again. You miss home? She said, come home. You're vaccinated. What are you waiting for? What am I waiting for? 
I know that the popo that I meet won't be the same as the popo in my memories. But there's nothing keeping us from making new memories, except maybe a bit of water. And I think we can handle that. A lot of people have been spending a lot of time alone this year. To fill the void in their lives, some people bought pets, others bought plants. Garden centers across the country have been reporting plant and garden supply shortages. Today, on National Gardening Day, Nicole McNulty went to New York's largest garden and plant store to see how business has been going. At 116th Street and Park Avenue in Harlem, under the subway overpass, there's a tall picket fence made of reclaimed wood. Behind it are thousands of flowering plants and many, many trees. This is the Urban Garden Center, owned by Dimitri Gatanis. They look like flowers, but they're, but they're succulents. What's going on, baby? You sad? Right, we're going to fix you up. You know, these are calanchos. I mean, the fieldies. I mean, this feels like the, I mean, you never even felt anything like that before. It's unbelievable. Gatanis's grandfather opened his first plant shop in 1959. They moved into this 20,000-square-foot location in 2000. When they opened, there was no electricity or running water. But the cheap rent is a plus. There is one thing that takes some getting used to, the trains. This, this is the, my nemesis. When the pandemic hit last year, the center was considered an essential business because it sells edible plants. Ever since, lines have been out the door and online sales have been through the roof. It's a plant craze, indoor plant craze, that was just fueled with the, with the, uh, with the pandemic. Gatana says there's a few things driving sales. Older people have more time to garden. Younger people with less space are turning to indoor plants. There's been a craze for posting pictures of plants on Instagram. Another reason that we are seeing such an uptick in the amount of plants that are being sold is because uh, this is a health crisis. Dr. Melinda Knute is a horticulture researcher at the University of Florida. And so people are seeking um, different remedies to assist them in dealing with this health crisis. And uh, as we know from research that uh, plants can help in different ways, such as mentally, um, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. There are people are also looking at plants as a, if you want to say, a substitute for a pet. Gary Bachman's a research professor of horticulture at the University of Mississippi. And they're looking at that and taking care of the, their, their, their plants as they would a pet, as they would a child. Back at the Urban Garden Center, longtime customer Jonathan Shepard says plants are the perfect antidote to COVID isolation. It's it, it makes you just feel you feel way better when you're home, you, especially if you're in a little jungle. Gatana says plants might not be the most obvious choice for people looking for some company in their lives. But he says you don't need a green thumb to get started. Start small, he says. And when you kill a plant, because you will, don't worry, just try again. Nicole McNulty, Columbia Radio News. Citronella, you know citronella? Yeah, the mosquito repellent. That's correct. This is for you. You'll love the smell. It's oh wonderful. God. Isn't that crazy? So Put it in your bag. It's going to be a breath of fresh air for later. Thank you. 
Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Faye Lu ran our show. Senior producer Arcelia Martin led our staff of reporters with help from producers Layla Dose and Kat Smith. Senior editor Haley Zhao and assistant editor Megan Zarez led our copy team. Web producer Renee Roden managed our website today. And Kate Stockroom brought us today's news. Our instructors Sally Herships, Patty Hirsch, and Ben Shapiro advised our staff. Additional thanks to WNYC Archive Collections, BBC Sound Effects Archive, and courtesy NYC Municipal Archives. I'm Jack Stone Truitt. And I'm Karen Wainerajo. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and uptownradio.org on Thursday evenings. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, thanks for listening and stay safe.